0: I think I'll start with a poem by Juan Ramon Jimenez. He says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see. I am not I. I am this one. Walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains quiet when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, and the one who will remain standing when I die. So I don't want to talk about I. I want to talk about this one. This one. Now, actually, I'll take that back. I think I'm going to talk mostly about I, and then maybe (laughs) a little bit about this one. (laughs) I think it's mostly I. So I've been... The teaching team knows this. I've been struggling with this talk. It's been difficult. What to say, how to say it. You know, the Dhamma is vast. It's vast. And it can get very vast when you're trying to narrow down it to talk about one thing. And um, I think... Mostly, it's because there are two things going on here at the center. On one hand, there's this unfolding of concentration that's getting pretty thick in the room all over the whole center. And then there's this uh, natural, fine-tuning of view. It's sort of what... Brian was pointing to this morning. It's both this concentration and this fine-tuning of view. And when these two things are based in understanding or right understanding, wisdom naturally arises. But when these two are not based in right understanding, there is a lot of confusion and bewilderment. And it generates a lot of harm. So what I, was, what I have been feeling and noticing is this fluidity between wisdom arising and a lot of harm. So I decided what I really want to talk about is harm. I'm just going to lean into the harm part a little bit. Um, and I want to start with this sutta uh, by a guy whose name is Rahita, Rahitasa. Rahita-sa. I think that's how you pronounce it, I don't know, I've heard it pronounced differently, but rahita is this deva, comes to the Buddha, and um, he has a practice question, just like we all come to the Buddha with our little practice questions. And so he wants to know, Is it possible, friend, by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear? So if I translate in that language of ours, he's saying, Is it possible, friend, by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos, the world, where one does not suffer. And the Buddha says, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know, to see, to reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not suffer. And when Rahita saw, heard that, (laughs) the next thing he says is, It's amazing and awesome how well that has been said. (laughs) So you know what happened. He just relaxed. He's like, oh, finally. I knew it. I knew it. So he says, I tell you, friend, that it's not possible. That when you said that I tell you, friend, it's not possible by traveling to know or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not suffer that, that is what is amazing, to hear him say that. He says, then he goes into this tirade about how special he is, who his teacher was, how powerful he is, what all he can do. And he is exceptional in the things he can do. And he talks about what he's endowed with, his speed, his capacities. He is great, beyond great. He is just off the chain. <laughs> And so he goes back and talks about how he's a great practitioner and how he does not stop uh, except to eat, to drink, to chew, taste, urinate, defecate, and sleep only to fight off weariness. Otherwise, he's dedicated. But all through all that, all of his great skill, his great capacity, his great practice, he has not Reach the end of suffering. And uh, so when the Buddha told him it was not possible to do that by traveling, of course, Rahidasa was like, Thank you. But I knew that. But thank you for validating my struggle. And then the Buddha says, But I tell you, friend, that it's not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the end of the cosmos where you no longer suffer. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the cosmos. And yet it is just within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and intellect that I declare there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path leading to the end of the cosmos. And somehow in that, Rohitasa understood that his, his mistake was trying to travel his way through. So the reason why I like Rohitasa is because, you know, he's like me. I was a lawyer, very skilled, very smart. And even with all his skill and wisdom and know-how, he was still struggling all the time. He was still, you can hear the disappointment in the fact that he was so great and yet none of that seemed to work Uh, in his capacity. You can feel the hard work and practice and and how diligent and dedicated he was, and still, he's suffering all the time. And I, I could hear the unhappiness and the disappointment in him, and that when he went to the Buddha, he was both seeking a validation, but I think he was also seeking this kind of answer: uh, how do how do you do this? How is this done? And the Buddha basically just corrected his view, did not really give him any instructions on how to do it, other than he corrected, he shifted his view from this striving outwardly to find a way to fix himself, which is what I think he was trying to do, was to fix himself, to fix whatever was causing him to suffer. If he could fix it, he would be okay. And I think the Buddha corrected his view and just said, turn it from out there to in here. You shift that view. And with your intellect and your perception, this body is where you're going to come to the end of suffering. In some respects, the... I think a lot of this points to some of the struggles we have when we start deeply meditating, deeply practicing, because we see a lot of who we know ourselves to be. We see a lot of our histories. We see a lot of our thoughts, behaviors. All of a sudden, we begin to see... All this stuff of who we are. And when I started seeing mine, if you're anything like me, it was a mess. I saw a lot of harmful behavior, a lot of meanness, a lot of overprotectiveness, especially if you come from trauma. There's a lot of guarding of who you are and how you are in the world and shoving and pushing things to try to make everything fit so that. The fitting of the world, in my view, is going to help alleviate suffering. And this is what I think Rahitasa was trying to do. To do all this skillfulness in order for him not to suffer. And yet, he still is. So when the Buddha corrected his view, I remember the first time I thought about this. It's sort of this idea that the whole of the world is right here. Your whole life is showing up in this moment right here, the whole of it. I know we think we had these long lives. I mean, I'm in my 60s, so I know I've been around 60 years. That's 365 days a year. I can tell you all kinds of stories I've lived through, all kinds of lives, I've been through lots of them. Up here, down, tried this, tried that. And all of those stories, they don't mean anything in some moment when I'm stuck in some difficulty. All the stuff I knew, all the stuff I learned, everything I understood to be true, all of it. It doesn't. So what I think the Buddha was pointing to is that in the real sense of it, in a given moment, any given moment, there is the knowing of dukkha. And in the knowing of dukkha, the whole of the practice unfolds because we can know its cause, we can know its cessation, and we can know the path that leads to that cessation. All of it right then and there. And all of my training, studying, the stuff I went through, that is not, it's not going to help me in a moment when I am stuck in some hindrance, as Dara was talking about. So I want to try to see if I can walk through how I begin to understand this and see if I can basically inspire you to want to stick with some of this dukkha a little bit longer let it linger i know there's a part of us that wants to hurry up and get to that peaceful state of just riding the rest of the time out linger longer here in the the soup of it <laughs> or, or rebecca says you got to let it marinate a little bit here And so I want to inspire you to stay with this dukkha longer. Um, For a long time, I practiced all by myself. And I meditated a little, well, I guess what I would call meditation. Really, I just sat there and went to my happy place. But I meditated, and mostly I read stuff about Buddhism, stuff about Dhamma, stuff about Buddha, stuff about the practice and came up with a lot of views and opinions about what I thought the whole thing was what it was about, what Buddha meant when he said this and when he said that oh I meant he meant this, he meant that and a lot of my friends and family would say ooh, I would talk about they'd say what about Buddhism and I would tell them these long discourses about what I thought Buddhism was and they were like ooh, very impressed very impressed (laughs) I probably shouldn't tell you this, especially since it's recorded. But (laughs) (laughs) my mother would come in on my meditation. I would go sit in the the room, her room, to meditate because it was upstairs and away from everybody. And she would come in every once in a while to putz about and do some little things. I know she was really just coming in to see what I was doing. So basically, I was just sitting there. And then I would hear her come up the stairs. okay. <laughs> she would go downstairs, and she'd say, she's still meditating. <laughs> oh, my God, I'd watch the clock and be like, okay, I think that's enough. I'll go downstairs. And the room around me was like, oh. You're really doing it. You're really doing it. <laughs> and I remember at that time, it was sweet. I thought I was doing something. I was, I was yeah, something was happening. And there was this Dhamma Chanda that Brian talked about and this faith that was connected. But like Rohitasa, I did not have an understanding of anything just this kind of views and thoughts about it. So when I came to my very first retreat and the whole thing was sitting and walking all day, I mean, I I, I, I thought we were doing it wrong because we should talk about the Eightfold Path and really kind of understand it, like study it. I had a workshop or something. And instead, I'm sitting there with the whole of my life and all of my mistakes and all of the things I had done that I wished I never would remember. All the ways I was mean to my kids, mean to my family, just mean, 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 all the time would just keep coming up. And I had this misunderstanding about what was happening. I would get stuck in my meanness And the stories that were arising during my sits and uh, just misunderstood what was actually happening. I read a lot of Pema Children, so I have a quote from her. She is like the queen of suffering. (laughs) She says, people get into a heavy duty sin and guilt trip. Feeling that if things were going wrong, that means they did something bad and they were being punished. That's not the idea at all. The idea of wisdom is that you continually get the teachings that you need to open your heart. To the degree that you didn't understand in the past how to stop protecting your soft spot or how to stop armoring your heart, you're given this gift of teaching in the present moment, in the form of your life, to give you everything you need to open further. Right? So this this point, there's some pointing here about what's happening when 90% of the room is beginning to experience all this pain, and suffering, and seeing all of this harm, it's not uh, random. I don't think it's random at all. In fact, I think that everything the Buddha was pointing to as he's pointing us to how to practice, including the main establishment of mindfulness in the Satipatthana, Put your focus here on the body, feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neither, thoughts, emotions, dhammas, all of that pointing is to point us right here, be quiet, be still, right here. And the thing that's going to start arising is harm. And it's going to arise in all kinds of forms, but it arises over and over and over. I think that the Buddha's whole practice is pointing towards being able to live a life of non-harm. And in order for us to be beings that don't perpetrate further harm, we got to really begin to understand what harm is, how it shows up, where it comes from, what is that, that harm that we're beginning to feel. So there's a process that's unfolding here. And um, it's designed to help us discern this harm, discern it from the inside out. Not just to Wallow in the harm, but to begin to see and know how to escape the painful repetitiveness of that pain painful harm and uh, Part of the reason why I was struggling so much with this is because I can feel it when i'm when we're talking to you as teachers, we feel this, we know we feel it we 're not like you know, back here, and you're there struggling. We can feel it, and everything in us wants to alleviate that harm. But it's sort of like that story, I can't remember, where somebody tried to help a butterfly get out of the cocoon and kind of snipped it a little bit, messed the whole thing up. (laughs) And did more damage than if they had just left it there to struggle. There's something inherent in all life that we struggle. So several years ago, I read a sutta. And uh, it changed the way I thought about practice. And in this changing of the way I thought about practice, it changed the way I looked at harm. It's about... a Um, this wealthy householder who uh, was a benefactor for the Buddha. His name is Ananda Pindaka. And he became one of Buddha's students. He was wealthy, and so he actually... Uh, gave some land, Jedha's Grove, that you hear a lot about in the suttas, he gave some land to the Buddha and all Buddha's disciples so that he could have a place to be during the rains retreat. And they could come and practice uh, during the heavy rains and not uh, be outside. Um, and so one day Ananda Anandapendaga is going to have a practice meeting with the Buddha and... Uh, he realizes on his way, that he's basically too early. It's alms rounds, and then after the alms rounds, there would be this period of seclusion where the Buddha and uh, uh, his students would practice. And so Ananda Pindaka decides, I'm going to go to this park, Deer Park, and I'm going to go over there. There's always a whole bunch of contemplatives there other students from other teachers. I'm going to go just check out with them, talk to them, hang out, see how they're doing, see what they think, see how they're practicing, and I'll wait for my time. So, when they see Ananda Pindika coming, they don't know that he's coming to talk to them. They're like me when uh, Mama would come upstairs in the room. They all of a sudden got quiet. They're like shh shh shh. shh. <laughs> thinking that would encourage Ananda Pindika to come over and talk to him. And he did. He came over and talked to him. So they want to know, what are your views? What do you think about all this Dhamma stuff? What, is, what do you think? What are your views? What does your teacher teach you? And Ananda Pindaka, in his, good, his wisdom, said, well, I can't just start espousing this. You tell me what you think. You tell me your thoughts, your opinions. And then I can tell you uh, I understand what you're looking for. You're like, and I'll tell you mine. So they begin to tell them with great authority what they believe, their opinions. We believe this and only this. We think it's that and only that. And this is the way it is. And they go through all their opinions. And at the end, they're like, okay, we've told you ours. So you tell us yours. And this is what Ananda Pindaka told them. He says, whatever has been brought into being, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated, and that it's inconsistent. Whatever is inconstant, in whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress, Is not me. It's not what I am. It is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment, right understanding, right view, as it actually is present, I also discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. So, what he says to them is, That whatever is arising in that moment, somehow or another, our perception and intellect is making it all up, coming up with some kind of framing. It's willed, it's pushed into being, and it's dependent upon the moment. And because it's dependent upon the moment, it's conditioned, it is going to at some point, fall away. And this conditioned arising energies and thoughts and things, eventually, when they pass away, this rising falling is stressful. It's always going to be. So in that moment, present moment, seeing it as it is, you can also see how to escape the pain and the stress that's tied to it. In the moment, it's not something you can think about. It's something that you see right there. So when I read this, I did not have a wider understanding of this referring to everything. And it's difficult to come to even a thought that everything, like this room, the stage, that, that, no pumpkin i mean that it starts getting out there too far for me but what arose in me constantly at that time was thinking 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 it i was not doing any other meditation than thinking meditation and so i decided to imagine that all my thoughts were lies, fabrication, made up, willed, pushing them into being. This is like, this was like a game changer for me. This idea that all my thoughts were lies. Because of most of my thoughts, I. Well, I mean, first, you don't even know you're thinking. And, and if I were thinking, I believe whatever it is I'm saying. These practitioners here, the people, the contemplatives that Ananda Pindika was talking to, they did not understand him at all. They were just stuck. They were dumbfounded. They're like, uh, Okay. <laughs> That's your opinion, but uh, we got we got our opinion. <laughs> so basically Ajahn Chah. This is the way they were. He says, Ajahn Chah says, whatever we feel we are definite. Whenever we feel we are definitely right, so much so that we refuse to open to anything or anybody else. Right there, we are wrong. It becomes wrong view. And so Anandapendika took his leave. He went and talked to the Buddha. And the Buddha was so impressed with him. Gave a Dhamma talk later that night. Told all his monks, you do well to listen to Ananda Anandapendika. So of course when the Buddha told his monks that, I decided, okay, but me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. So this is about my, my thinking, right? So right here... I, my thinking was all based in harm, or I didn't even notice it. And so here, we're in a center, this whole retreat center, you may not realize it, but it's ripe for understanding, for right understanding, because it's quiet enough for you to start hearing your thinking. I know that thinking is painful, just Stay with me for a moment. It's quiet enough for you to know you are thinking because mostly we don't know we are thinking. But if it gets quiet enough and we can hear and know we are thinking, we're in the game now. You're also sensitive enough. There's enough samadhi that you're sensitive enough that you can begin to feel pain. You can feel the harm of that thinking. We can feel subtle harm. I mean, you can have a memory come up and you can feel it like it's right there. I have had, all of us have had some memories show up in the middle of a sit And you basically want to bolt out of the room because you think everybody in the room knows you just did that. (laughs) Nobody knows. I'm telling you. Only you know. But still, it feels like a light just went boom. And it's just on you. And everyone can see. It's not like that. It's something else happening here with this sensitivity and this recognition of thinking and all of this thinking about pain. We are in a place where we can begin to distinguish thinking from direct experience and we can know harm from non-harm. This is, uh, this is not an easy thing to do, to know this. I remember my sister. She, um, she and I used to fight all the time. I mean, they were knockdown dragouts, and I don't know about white people or non-black people, but when you're in black families, we got to go to the family dinner every Sunday. There ain't no, I'm not going to the family dinner. That just don't happen. You would show up at the family dinner every week. And I would show up, my sister would show up, we'd be there about a couple hours and then all of a sudden we are cussing each other out. Every week. I'm not talking about couple weeks, not like just on Thanksgiving, this is every week for many years. (laughs) And of course I was practicing, so there would be these kind of, you know, that's what they teach you in Buddhism, that's the way your practice is going. (laughs) it was terrible maybe this practice isn't for you (laughs) it was the worst I hated that woman and I would fight with her and I'd sit in my car and I would say don't do it to her don't fight be patient calm and cool steady as she goes don't get involved (laughs) 45 minutes in. I'm cussing her out. And I could not understand why. And then I read a sutta where the Buddha gave some instructions to Rahula, his son. His son was seven years old. And he gave him these instructions. He said, Okay, Rahula, think about your behavior your thoughts and your actions and your speech and what what does a mirror do and he says oh a mirror reflects your what you it sees and he's like that's right that's what i want you to do with your thoughts and he said your actions comma which means anything you're thinking anything you're doing anything you're saying I want you to reflect on whether or not this behavior is harmful or not harmful, skillful or not skillful. I want you to do it before you say anything, think anything, do anything. I want you to do it while you're saying, thinking, and doing. And I want you to do it after. You're finished saying, thinking, and doing. I read that sutta, and I knew Buddha was not a parent. You cannot give a seven-year-old instructions like that. It is just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so I thought, originally, this is foolish, what he's asking, it's just harmful to, 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 to put that kind of pressure on a seven-year-old. But if you think about it, when I'm in my, when I'm in my mom's house with my sister, there's a couple of seven-year-olds in there. This is what we were doing. We were replaying old dynamics over and over, week after, week after week after week after week, and it will never stop, never. So I would read this sutta and read this sutta trying to figure out how am I supposed to do this? If Buddha told a seven-year-old, I should be able to do this, and then three words stuck out to me, and I, compl- I understood One, he told Rahula to reflect the bond, right? He told him to consider it. It's not an edict. He says, consider this. Two, he told him to do it repeatedly. So he must have assumed a seven-year-old's not going to do this. Do it repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And three, he said, the word after. So even, we all think, get it right. And then there's the, okay, stop myself. But mostly I was in the after. After it already happened, I would reflect upon what happened with my sister. I would go home, sit down in meditation, and think about it. And begin to reflect upon the harm. See if I could feel it and one day i felt it one day i did not change anything i did not change my behavior but one day in the midst of my sister saying something i did not come back i just sat there <laughs> my whole house looked at me like that I... <laughs> it's like you're going to i didn't say anything it was painful I could feel that whole family looking at me, saying, "Please, to worry. You're the big, outward, angry person. We're the passive-aggressive people. You got to be angry for all of us. Come on now. Come on now. You got to do your part. I actually had to have compassion for that room because they could not be with the idea that I would not continue the fight. It was more painful to steady than it was when I was just in the fight. But that realization that I don't have to fight them, I didn't have to get all involved with that, it began, it was like the first time I had this freeing feeling that I understood that this practice, when the Buddha was saying it is a process, it is a gradual unfolding, it means we got to stay with some of this difficulty and not wallow in it. We're not talking about wallowing it. The way Ajahn Chah said this is that the Dhamma has to sink deeply into the mind so that whatever we do, the mind has always goodness within it. All the ways of making merit are aiming at this. Goodness lies in the right view that is established in the mind. Then when we don't have to celebrate, uh, then we don't have to celebrate it or let anyone know about it. Simply let the mind have the firm confidence in the goodness and keep this going. There's a, there's a thing that's happening here. And if we skip over harm, we'll miss it. So I want to leave you with one last, uh, one more kind of sutta. It's, uh, the Buddha one time uh, gave a Dhamma talk on dividing his thoughts. He called it the two thoughts. And he, died, he divided this thought into uh, two sorts of thinking, is what he called it. So we got to make one, want to make one thing very, very clear. The Buddha was thinking. What I say? The Buddha was thinking. This is his thoughts. He had thoughts imbued with sensuality. And that's also been said to be sexuality. So he's thinking about sex. He's thinking about food, things he likes, things he wants. He's had thinking imbued with ill will. So he got some grumbling going on, some aversion going on. He's probably remembering all those five guys that left him when he was dying. He got some anger going on. And he's thinking imbued with harmfulness. That's all one sort. So he's thinking harmfulness, same kind of harmfulness we have, right? He's mad at people, wishing harm to people, mad. And that, and we can get caught in all that frustration and rage and all that mess that begins to show up. You start remembering all these stories and remembering all these events starting coming up. Uh, And he's thinking on that. You got that? Okay. He also is thinking imbued with renunciation, some degree of restraint. He has thinking that's imbued with non-ill will, some goodness, metta. And he has thinking imbued with harmlessness. And he put those in another sort. Another category. he so has got these two categories. And I want to refer to them, rather than go through the whole list each time, is just say, one was unskillful. That's the sensuality, ill will, harmfulness. And then the other one is skillful. He's thinking in both of these sections. And the first thing, we have to be clear is that the thinking itself is not the problem. If it were the problem, um, he wouldn't have come to understand what he came to understand by dividing his thoughts up. He divided them up. Um, So he had to recognize he was thinking. Recognize and know thinking is happening here. Um, And he had to have the presence of mind to begin to see. I mean, I've thought about it one day. The reason why we know about the hindrances and we know so much about the hindrances is because Buddha dealt with so much of the hindrances and he wrote about it and talked about it. Well, not wrote about it, talked about it. Talked about it to all his uh, practitioners, all the students. He told them about it, prepared them for it. So he had to have his own degree of sleepiness and work through that sleepiness in order for him to understand the wisdom of working through it. So now he understands thinking's going on and he understands all of these various types of thinking or emotional thinking or distracted thinking or thinking about worrying, planning, all of this, rehearsing. Um, this, just this idea that he would begin to shift his attention from being in the thinking to knowing he's thinking knowing he's thinking, and knowing what kind of thinking is going on. It's a big shift. Not just thinking, but you're somehow in this more awareness, rested back, knowing thinking is happening. Okay? I see it. Then the second thing he said is that when he realized he had all these unskillful thinking... He, what arose in him was that uh, this sort of thinking led to his own affliction and to the affliction of others or the affliction of both. And that it obstructed his discernment, promoted vexation. You know what that is. And does not lead to unbinding. It was leading to more spinning around in it. That recognition means that Buddha had to feel the pain of these, this thinking. He had to feel it. He had to know this is painful. Sometimes we get caught up in some of this thinking, and the thinking is painful. We can hear it in your practice meetings, but you don't sound like you know it's painful. You're talking about it like it's painful. But you're also spinning in it like I got to stay in this. And so there's a way that we can uh, rest in this awareness and begin to see the painfulness, the afflictive nature of some of this thinking, how much it sucks us in, glues us to it. You can feel that kind of gluey nature of it and that pain of being glued to it. We can see how even just being stuck in it, we're glued to it and, and we're just ringing somebody up and down the other. They're not even sitting here. But the pain of what we're doing is as bad as me and my sister arguing at the dinner table in front of everybody. So this is important because there's a lot of painful thinking going on. A lot of painful, it feels painful memories, all of this. But all of this pain is not something from the past and the future it's arising right here, right here this moment. And so the last thing that the Buddha saw in all of this is that he could see how it was obstructing his ability to discern how to be in the moment. He could see that. Not because he just was so wise and so great that he just could see these things. He saw it because he had to sit, know he was thinking, and know the pain of this thinking. So then um, he saw also in this thinking that there was this way in which he could have skillful thinking. He, he, he described it almost like when he stayed with the affliction, when he stayed with the difficulty of it, he could see the difficulty of this, what he really began to understand is the drawback of staying with this thinking process. And some of that is what some of you have seen. You can see yourself caught in a thought bubble and you see yourself on that train, you're in that train, you're going, 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 and you're in it. And then at some point you're like, wait, that's just thinking. And you notice how painful this is and the kind of drawback of staying with this thought that it's not going to ever lead you to any kind of wisdom or understanding. It's just going to spin around and around and around and around. And every day your mind will be like, okay, let's pick that back up again. Start the day anew. (laughs) Let's let's go right back. (laughs) You're like, no, I don't want to go anymore. But it'll come right back. So he began to notice that when he began to cultivate or be with the thoughts that were skillful, that there would be no harm, that uh, uh, he could, uh, that the unwholesome thoughts, uh, unskillful thoughts, would abate as he began to shift towards restraint and this goodwill, metta, and uh, non harm. So if he noticed he had harmful thoughts and he shifted his attention to thoughts of non-harm, then the harmful thoughts could abate. But then he thought he noticed something else too. He noticed that if he dwelled too much on the non-harming kind of skillful thoughts, that he dwelled in the thinking of how of restraint and all of that, that that too, would make his mind weary. And so it's almost as if he, the way I take this, this, he learned how to use the skillful thoughts to help abate the unskillful thoughts and then rested back in just the awareness. So some unskillful thoughts would arise. He could use these skillful thoughts to abate that, and then he could rest in this awareness. Somehow, I begin to practice in this way, almost like wanting to see these unskillful thoughts arise, just to be able to try some skillful thoughts and to see. Ajahn Tito says, "This is a what this is this thing I'm talking about." Um, he calls this an ethical sensitivity that asked us to consider more carefully what is harmful and to exercise discrimination, or in my word, discernment. To begin to see that it's not just you lost in a story, that there is a harmfulness that's being done, even if it's being perpetrated on you. There is a harm being done here, and it's learning to uproot ourselves, unhook ourselves from this constant harm. I think that sensibility that Ajahn Tzu teacher is pointing to is refers to the impulses or the energy that can arise in the mind in any given moment. And it can be ill will, it can be kindness. It could be some angry story. It could be some sensibility. It could be about anything, truthfulness. And what I found is that at this level, we can see harm in a completely different way. The way we begin to see harm is the drawback of it. The drawback and the way that that obstructs Impedes, gets in the way of whatever forward movement we had. Like the morning sits, it's sort of like I hear it in the way you're talking. Some of you will be like, In the morning, it's beautiful, smooth, going along, everything is easy. And then by the afternoon, boom, I'm getting booming with all this stuff. And it's beginning to see that not noticing some little thinking going on in the morning because it's easy and smooth that weariness catches up with us and in the afternoon we get hit with all of this sort of negative harmful thinking so we're beginning to see not the negative harmful thinking like this is bad it's got to go we want to begin to see the drawback of this just the drawback of the thinking too much in the pleasant, skillful times and the drawback of thinking and getting stuck in some of this uh, unskillful, unwholesome thinking. So, that's really all I have. I want to encourage you as best I can to not be afraid of thinking. It is not the enemy of your practice. Thinking is as natural, normal, and as constant as you're hearing, as you're seeing, as you're sensing, body, feeling, thinking is going to be happening. We know we can be aware of hearing. We can be aware of seeing. But oftentimes, we can even be aware of our sensations and tasting and all of these at this kind of enhanced access that we have to knowing all these sensory experiences. And in the Dhamma, thinking is a sense door. Information is arising. Some of it is arising to purify energy and get that energy out of the body. Some of it is arising because of Things that we connect to, some sense door, we connect to that, and then all of a sudden we're lost in some thought on that. Some of it's arising because of emotional energy. There's all kinds of reasons why this thinking is arising. But the thinking itself is not the enemy. It's actually our friend. It's the place where we can actually find a doorway to escape. So I want to leave you with this quote from Alice Walker, this uh, African-American writer. This is uh, what I think is happening when we get in this place where we're at and there's all this painful memories, feelings, thoughts that are coming up. She says, some periods of our growth are so confusing that we don't even recognize that growth is happening. We may feel hostile or angry or weepy and hysterical, or we may feel depressed. It would never occur to us unless we stumbled on a book or a person who explained it to us that we were in fact in the process of change, of actually becoming larger spiritually than we were before. Whenever we grow, we tend to feel it as a young seed must feel with the weight and the inertia of the earth as it, as it uh, seeks to break out of its shell on its way to becoming a plant. Often the feeling is anything but pleasant. But what is most unpleasant is the not knowing what is happening. Those long periods when something inside ourselves seems to be waiting, holding its breath, unsure about what the next step should be, eventually become the periods we wait for. For it is in those periods that we realize that we are being prepared for the next phase of our lives and that in all probability a new level of the personality is about to be revealed. So in these periods of not wallowing in the pain of these thoughts but the recognition there is harm here. That's what we want to begin to see. Let's sit a moment here. I think I'll leave us with Juan's poem. am not I, I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see whom at times I manage to visit and whom at other times I forget the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I talk, when I hate the one who takes a walk when I am indoors the one who will remain standing when I die for your kind attention that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be at all. <laughs> so we have some time for walking and um, and we'll come back for some chanting. humming probably.